Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Prescription drug abuse is a prevalent problem across the country. What started as a health care issue has slowly become a problem facing our criminal justice system. As our society grapples with the issues, many are left behind with little to no help. I'm Corey Tuga, and today we're joined by Professor Liz Chiarello. Dr. Chiarello is a sociologist with SLU's Department of Sociology and Anthropology. She also holds a secondary appointment at the School of Law with the Center for Health Law Studies. Thank you for joining us today, Liz. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with the fact that many of us are aware of these problems with prescription drug abuse in the U.S., but really have no idea the extent of the issue. So can you talk about how broad this is and how it's become a problem with our society? Absolutely. What we're dealing with really are two interrelated social problems. We have an opioid abuse epidemic on the one hand um, and a crisis of untreated pain on the other. These social problems are interrelated and they often end up looking like a zero-sum game. Opioids, which consist of either natural or synthetic opium derivatives, uh, serve the dual function of relieving pain and providing pleasure. Mm -hmm. They also create physiological dependence, or they often create that, regardless of whether they're used medically or non-medically. As a result, the same drugs that are used to treat pain are frequently drugs of addiction. So what that means is that enforcement-oriented efforts to combat the opioid abuse epidemic have negative implications for pain patients, while liberal approaches to pain treatment can create opportunities for addiction and diversion. Mm So if we look first at the opioid crisis, um, which the Obama administration declared an epidemic in 2011, what we've seen are increased prescribing rates. Opioid prescriptions increased 402% from 1997 to 2007. We've seen increased overdose rates. Uh, Drug overdose has now surpassed traffic accidents as the leading cause of death in the United States. We're also seeing rising rates of heroin use connected to prescription drug abuse. There have also been an increase in drug-related crimes, such as theft and pharmacy robberies. So if we look at this exclusively from the perspective of addiction and overdose rates, we can start to think these drugs are unnecessary and that our job should be to eliminate them to save lives. And there's certainly some truth to that. But the story changes when we shift our perspective and start to look at the pain crisis as well. The Institute of Medicine estimates that 116 million Americans suffer from chronic non-cancer pain, and pain management advocates claim that patients receive insufficient treatment. The pain management movement that mobilized in the 80s and the 90s successfully altered healthcare providers' medical and legal environments by helping states adopt intractable pain laws that buffered physicians who treated pain with heavy doses of narcotics from criminal consequences. Um, But today, many physicians refuse to prescribe opioids or provide them only for a select few patients. This concentrates high-dose opioid prescribing among a minority of physicians, mainly pain specialists, who are willing to prescribe enough medication for patients to get relief. Together, these two social problems bring the fields of healthcare and criminal justice into uneasy contact. Whereas medical professionals are concerned about treating patients' pain and addiction, law enforcement professionals are concerned about stopping the illicit use of prescription drugs and preventing crime associated with drug use. As you can imagine, workers in these fields confront these issues from very different perspectives and bring distinct resources to bear on the problem. Mm-hmm. It sounds like we're talking about these two different problems, both addiction and pain management. And you mentioned that some physicians are afraid to prescribe opioids for pain management. But what are some of these broad, overarching ways that we're dealing with these issues as a society? 
So there are a wide variety of approaches to dealing with these problems, and they each have their benefits Mm -hmm. and disadvantages. There's no silver bullet to dealing with these issues. One of the major state strategies has been the establishment of prescription drug monitoring programs, or PDMPs. And what these do is track patients' drug acquisition, and they give healthcare providers and sometimes law enforcement access to patients' histories. Essentially, PDMPs act as tools of surveillance in two ways. They enable providers to track patients, and then they enable law enforcement to track providers and patients. One goal of these programs is to prevent patients from going to multiple providers Mm -hmm. or uh, stockpiling pills for sale or use, which is a process known as doctor shopping or pharmacy shopping. And another way they're used is to identify physicians who are over-prescribing or who are running pill mills um, and pharmacists who are over-dispensing or who are involved in a criminal enterprise. So PDMPs currently exist in every state except Missouri, and they're touted as a very helpful solution to dealing with this issue. But one of the challenges with PDMPs is that they're heavily underutilized. So even in states like California that pass laws that require physicians to register or require physicians to use the database, many of them still don't. So then they're missing critical pieces of information that could help them strategize more effectively about patient care. Other strategies that we've been using are things like abuse deterrent formulas. So a number of drug companies are starting to create these abuse deterrent versions of their narcotics. One of the primary methods of opioid abuse is to crush and then snort the pills. Abuse deterrent formulas prevent this by turning the pill into a gel when it's crushed, so then you can't snort Mm -hmm. it. This doesn't affect people who use it orally for medical use, but it will affect people who are trying to abuse the drug. However, abuse deterrent formulas are certainly not um, the be-all, end-all. In fact, they may have unintended consequences that increase public health risks. Notably, um, in Scott County, Indiana, we saw a huge HIV outbreak um, within the last year, and that was due to a reformulated version of Opana. So when people could no longer crush and snort the pill, oh, they were injecting. cooking They were cooking and injecting, mm-hmm. right, which then raises, uh, raises the risk of bloodborne illness. Other approaches are medication-assisted treatment, which is um, the use of medication in combination with counseling and behavioral therapies. A lot of people have heard about methadone clinics. That's a type of MAT, but there are really restrictive laws around methadone clinics. And so some of the more modern types like Suboxone and Vivitrol are serving as drug replacement therapies. There's also a lot of cultural resistance to Mm -hmm. using a drug to treat another drug, um, even though these strategies have been shown to be really effective in other countries. We're also seeing a big push to you to get naloxone available to first responders, including police officers, mm-hmm. firefighters, EMTs, to have the drug um, when they're going out on their calls, but also to make sure that those drugs are available in user communities so that people can quickly mm-hmm. administer it without having to wait for a first responder. So here in St. Louis, there's a program that's a, a joint initiative between, it's a, it's a SAMHSA-funded initiative between the National Council on Alcoholism and drug abuse and the Missouri Institute of Mental Health. It's called the MoHope Pro- Project. Um, and what they're doing is working to increase naloxone availability and decrease overdose deaths in the state. And although some people have called for more enforcement, I think there's a general consensus that we can't arrest our way out of this problem. We've got to find other strategies. Absolutely. So these other strategies, there, there are probably a lot of different ideas out there, and you mentioned some of them. So how are these different strategies and what we're seeing happening? How are our healthcare providers being impacted by this? 
So I think that healthcare providers are really affected by both of these problems. They're affected by the opioid abuse epidemic in that it forces them to look at their patients a little bit differently. You know, instead of saying, what can I do to treat this patient? They're saying, what can I do to treat this patient? But is this patient lying to me? And is this patient diverting drugs? Mm -hmm. And so I think they bring a much more skeptical mindset Mm -hmm. uh, to the patient provider interaction that I think can compromise that relationship. With regards to pain, I think one of the biggest challenges is that medicine in general is not well-equipped to treat pain. And I think a lot of that has to do with funding, and a lot of that has to do with education. If on average we spend 8 to 10 minutes with our physician, that is not time to get into issues, um, the psychosocial Um, underpinnings of pain. And so in that time, you have time to prescribe a drug, but you don't have time to really flesh out what's going on for the patient. And so I think that that affects their relationship with the patients too. And I think I think providers also end up feeling a little bit helpless because they have patients who are suffering from pain, and there's no clear answer for how to deal with that. The other way that I think they're affected is um, when I look at this issue, I think the world has gone topsy-turvy. Basically, what we have are healthcare providers acting more like law enforcement. They're being suspicious of their patients. Mm -hmm. They're checking. That's not what we want to (laughs) see. No, definitely not. So they're checking the PDMP. You know, they're, they're asking, is this a legitimate patient or is this a drug diverter? I remember when I was doing this earlier research on pharmacists, I was talking to this pharmacist who was, who was saying, you know, um, I was just out of pharmacy school and this patient came in and I thought she was passing false prescriptions. And so I like called law enforcement. I called this other pharmacy and we like set up this sting and she was like, I am a brand new pharmacist and I am acting like a police officer. Uh And so it takes them, I think, outside of the bounds of their professional practice at the same time that we take law enforcement outside of the bounds of their professional practice. So with naloxone, while I think that that is a really helpful approach to dealing with overdose deaths, we're also asking police officers to step out of their normal roles um, and to administer medication. Mm-hmm. We're also, and so I think that I think that creates a lot of of challenges for them, and it requires a lot of education and training to get both sets of providers um, to to take steps outside of their comfort zone. You're absolutely right about that. And you were talking about pharmacists a little bit. So they're really the ones that are on the front lines of the problem. And and you mentioned earlier that Missouri is the only state in the U.S. without a central prescription drug database. So this means that pharmacists have no way to track the people who hop from pharmacy to pharmacy. So can you talk about why this is a problem and how we can really address that? Absolutely. So I was at a conference last week, and I have to tell you, it's always a little bit embarrassing to go to these conferences where they show the map of the PDMPs and they show all the states that have them colored. You have to admit you're from Missouri. (laughs) Exactly. Right. There's this little island of white, and it's Missouri. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's my state. So the reason not having a PDMP is problematic is that without this resource, PD- Missouri basically becomes a magnet for people who are looking to divert drugs because there's there's no clear way mm-hmm. to track people who are stockpiling drugs. Now, keep in mind, 
PDMPs are useful, but they're not the only way to check. So for example, um, one of the red flags for people who are, uh, who are diverting or abusing medications is they will have insurance, but then they'll say, oh, I just want to pay cash. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that pharmacists will do in the absence of a PDMP is they'll go ahead and run it through the system. And then they can see, oh, they just got this at Walgreens and at CVS and at this independent pharmacy. And so it's not the only solution, but it's a very comprehensive solution. Uh, the other thing, you know, you mentioned pharmacists needing to check the PDMP, but it's not just pharmacists. It's also physicians. PDMPs should be a check and balance for all providers. Mm -hmm. And pharmacists are really secondary gatekeepers. You know, they're double checking what the physician's doing. Now, they have their own discretion, but it's not, um, it's not solely on them to prevent diversion or to prevent abuse. And so the physician should be checking that too before they're writing the prescription. Also, I'd like to note that the absence of the PDMP in Missouri is not due to a lack of desire or effort. One of the major obstacles to getting a PDMP in Missouri has been a single legislature legislator who's been filibustering mm -hmm. um, for several years. Um, he was quoted in the New York Times in 2014 saying about addicts, if they overdose and kill themselves, it just removes them from the gene pool. Wow. And I think anyone who has known or loved someone uh, struggling with addiction finds it really painful to hear that kind of position coming from our elected officials. And I think most elected officials are not are course, not on that page. Yes. I think it's really, this has been a really bipartisan issue and there's been a real push to deal with opioid abuse. But to get around the roadblock in the state legislature, Missourians have had to get innovative. Within the last year, St. Louis County, St. Louis City, and St. Louis Charles County have all passed ordinances to adopt PDMPs at the county level. Oh. The goal is to work with other counties in the state to develop a statewide program from the bottom up. This is a patchwork approach, and it circumvents the state legislature. It's unprecedented. No other state has gone through this process. But I really think it shows how committed advocates in this state are to combating the opioid epidemic. That's good to hear that some people are really making, making an effort to fight for this, because I think most of us have been touched by someone um, that has been an addict. So when we talk about this, what are the legal issues that healthcare providers face when they're addressing the issue of prescription drug abuse? So uh, there are a number of legal issues. One of the major issues for physicians and for pharmacists is that they are obligated to, to follow the Controlled Substances Act that requires physicians to engage in good faith prescribing, which is for a legitimate medical purpose with a patient with whom they have an established relationship. But pharmacists also have what's called a corresponding responsibility, which means uh, they are required to make sure that this is also a legitimate prescription. And so it is not enough for pharmacists to just call up the physician and say, did you mean to prescribe this? And the physician says yes. And the pharmacist says, okay, right? Mm -hmm. Like the pharmacist should also be uh, monitoring and making sure that, that this is appropriate and to refuse when it's not. But just as providers can be, um, can risk legal challenges for over-prescribing, they also risk legal challenges for under-prescribing. So they end up walking a very, very fine line around dealing with that. They also are not permitted to maintain addicts, which means you can't just prescribe drugs to someone who is addicted mm -hmm. um, without having a, a very specific type of license and being part of a very specific federal program. They also run into challenges when their patients overdose. That is when they might become subject of law enforcement investigations, particularly if they have several patients who overdose. They're also subject to investigations by a wide variety of administrative and regulatory organizations.
organizations who are making sure that they're prescribing and dispensing appropriately. But what I've been finding in my research is that providers are often protected from the um, from the kinds of scrutiny that I think mm-hmm. other people involved in the drug trade um, are subjected to. So I, I think this is a really good case for understanding white collar crime. So physicians who run pill mills, they, they don't necessarily get investigated. They don't necessarily have any sort of consequence. And I'm not talking about people who overprescribe a little bit. I'm talking about people who put tens of thousands of pills on the street within Mm -hmm. a few months of opening up practice. They're also protected, I think, because of prosecutorial discretion. Often prosecutors don't want to take on these cases. They're hard cases. They're complex. It's hard to it's hard to prove culpability. There's also the challenge of public opinion. It's hard to get a jury to look at a physician and think, oh, this is someone who's engaged in criminal activity. And and there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, in these cases. So there are certainly legal issues, but there's also a buffer for providers, um, even if they're engaged in criminal behavior. So I know that this is an area that you're obviously very particularly interested in. So can you talk about the research that you're doing and some of the common issues that you're seeing? Absolutely. The project that I'm currently looking at uses the case of opioid abuse as a way of understanding how two institutional fields, healthcare and criminal justice, manage the same social problem. As you can imagine, actors in those two fields come to this issue from very different perspectives mm-hmm. with different goals, different sets of resources. And so I'm interested in how those two fields manage the same problem and what that looks like. What I'm looking specifically at are arguments around the chilling effect, which is basically that law enforcement has become so heavy heavy-handed, that it has scared providers from prescribing and dispensing these medications. And what I want to understand for the first portion of this project that I'm working on is what does the legal environment or the enforcement environment really look like? Um, So what I'm doing is looking at three things. First of all, the enforcement processes in regulatory and criminal justice spaces to see how do you build an investigation? Where do you, how do you find these providers? What does this look like? The second piece is about organizational collaboration and contestation. So who's working together and who's working against each other as they're trying to build these cases? And then the third piece is about PDMP use. So um, how do law enforcement agents and regulatory agents use the PDMP in their work. Um, So I'm doing interviews with regulatory and criminal justice investigators in three states, California, Kansas, and Missouri. And so that's that's the main focus. The other work that I do is much more practically oriented. So I've served as a consultant with the mayor's office in Louisville, Kentucky, to help them deal with their heroin abuse problem. Um, and we've really thought through what what role can providers play in dealing with the heroin crisis, in preventing these issues from getting all the way to heroin. Uh, we've talked about simultaneously engaging in prevention, intervention, and harm reduction, combining resources among healthcare, criminal justice, and public health, and simultaneously tackling four interrelated social problems, pain, addiction, diversion, and bloodborne illness. So what are some of the policies that we should be looking to change that would address these issues that we've been talking about? So I think it's not just about changing policies, but it's also about making sure that we have the services to address this issue. One of the things that was really striking to me in my research when I was um, working in Kentucky was the lack of addiction treatment services. And that's true in Missouri, and that's true in California. That's true throughout the nation. And so um, there are a number of ways that we can get people into addiction treatment. But if we don't have the resources and we don't have the funding to provide addiction treatment, um, we end up at a dead end. 
Other things that would be helpful are funding our drug courts. It's a great way of keeping people out of the criminal justice system and getting them into treatment. A lot of our efforts are also really centered around drug disposal, um, but I think we could do a lot more to prevent drugs from getting out there. For example, um, partial fill would be a really good strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually, you know, if you break your leg, you end up with a 30-day supply of drugs or you get your wisdom teeth removed, they give you a 30-day supply Mm -hmm. of drugs. You might only take five days worth and then you have 25 days sitting in your cabinet um wouldn't it be better to take home the five-day supply or seven-day supply instead of sitting around with those drugs in your cabinet in missouri uh, we need to follow what other states have done and adopt a good samaritan law these are the laws that prevent people who call the police from being arrested for doing drugs when they call in an overdose call. Um, A lot of other states have done that, and that could be really critical for saving lives. Um, And finally, I think we really need to change the way that we think about addiction. We need to really accept the fact that addiction is a disease, um, and certainly it is related to criminal activity when there's theft associated with addiction. But in general, I think we need to center our understanding of addiction within a medical context and provide the medical resources we need to treat it. You've offered up some really practical advice on sort of how to move forward with this issue. And thank you so much again for joining us today, Liz. It's It's been very interesting to talk about the prescription drug abuse and sort of where it sits at the intersection of sociology and law. So thanks again. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.